There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist and this podcast series is dedicated to the discipline of psychiatry, discussing issues that whilst emanating directly from the discipline have implications for society generally. The series engages thought leaders from within the discipline and beyond to assist in exploring these issues and providing insights into some of the thinking that contributes to the richness of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, a condition associated primarily with children, but increasingly noted and diagnosed in adult populations too. The sufferer has their own challenges to face, but what about parents, siblings, family, spouses, partners, colleagues, peers, and teachers? How do they live with the sufferer? How do they cope? More specifically, what role can parents play when a child has ADHD? Our topic today is living with ADHD, and joining me to discuss the topic, I have the pleasure of welcoming Renata Skuman and Jessica Cheeseman. Now, Renata is a psychiatrist. She works in private practice in Belleville. She's an associate professor at the University of Stellenbosch's Business School. She's the convener of the South African Society of Psychiatrists Special Interest Group for ADHD, as well as a co-founder of Goldilocks and the Bear ADHD Project, which contributes to the Goldilocks and the Bear Foundation, uh, a foundation which is the first to offer non-profit ADHD screening and early intervention in underserved communities at schools. Jessica is an educational psychologist in private practice, as well as being a qualified foundation phase teacher. She has a special interest in supporting families of children with ADHD, as well as adults with ADHD. And her master's thesis focused on families of children with ADHD in South Africa, noting that aside from her master's in educational psychology, she has a research master's too. So, welcome to both of you, and thanks for taking the time to join us for today's episode. Renata, just to tee things up, can you provide a broad outline of ADHD in terms of clinical presentation, noting the key elements, just so that we get our terms of reference absolutely as they should be? With pleasure, Prof. Zabo. I first noted that you used the term sufferer and suffering. And although that might be the case, it's not always, and it doesn't have to be. And I think that's also important focus for us today. How can we prevent that suffering? If we look at the diagnosis of ADHD, there's a few concepts that's very important. Firstly, if we look at the diagnostic criteria, we have three groups of symptoms, what we call the core triad. The first group being the inattentiveness, the second hyperactivity, and the third impulsivity. Inattentiveness might be present in children, manifesting maybe as daydreaming or absent-mindedness. In adulthood, we can see missing details, drifting off in conversations, missing key information, and that can cause severe um, frustrations in a relationship, for example. If you look at hyperactivity in the children, we can see bouncy, busy kids. I almost want to say the prototypical ADHD child, which often then are labeled as being naughty or unruly or be, uh, having behavioral difficulties. But that's not always the case. Hyperactivity might also be an internal manifestation where they just feel extremely restless and their mind is just racing on different radio stations all the time. Right. In adults, we might still find someone that is very active, but they often channel it 
into sports, for example, of a very or a very energetic uh, type of work that they follow, but they have the inability to switch off, and they often manifest then as workaholics. The third group, the impulsivity, is what I call the dangerous group of symptoms. Um, in children, they will butt in conversations, shout out the answers in class. Um, don't read social situations very good. They might jump off a tree or push their hands in an electrical plug or something. In teenage years, we see a bit more severe difficulties in terms of maybe stealing the daddy's car or making bad decisions in terms of substance use or unwanted pregnancies. And in adulthood, we might see frequent job hopping, impulsive breaking up of relationships or third parties and all the other complications. But once again, bad decision making in terms of financial and often substances. So that's the core triad. Right. We also have to look at emotional dysregulation, which often is a very, very important symptom. And then the last two things that we need to consider in terms of diagnosis is that it's a lifespan disorder. So it's there since early childhood. If we go back in history, it has to be there. It's not something that suddenly developed six months ago. It's a cross domain. So it's not only academic problem eight to two on a school day or eight to five on a work day. And it has to cause functional impairment. Right. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's very pervasive in terms of its uh, manifestation and it doesn't kind of switch on and switch off. It's there and it stays there. And it has, for me, I mean, the, the issue of dysfunction, I was going to ask you specifically, what about consequences? Because, I mean, if one, one looks at these behaviors, both in childhood and in adulthood, and I think what was interesting to me in terms of how you were mapping it out was that there seemed to be age-specific kind of presentations. So children will present with impulsivity in one way. Adults may present in a different way, the same with uh, the hyperactivity and the inattention. So there seem to be age-related manifestations of the same underlying problem. And then, of course, it's pervasive. It's got a longitudinal history, and there are consequences. So your comments in terms of, 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 of my observations there. Yes, no, absolutely. It changed the clinical picture over time and according to the circumstances and the situation, how much support is present, etc. And for example, structure. People with ADHD often don't like structure, but they function much better within a structured environment. If we look at functional impairment, that can refer to academic impairment. Um, And we know that studies show that people with untreated ADHD can have up to two years less of educational attainment. However, ADHD is not something we treat to increase your scholastic achievement or your scholastic mark. I absolutely hate it when I get a call from a parent, my child gets 90, she needs to study eight hours a day, she must have ADHD because she can't study longer. We don't treat school marks. If the marks improve, that it's an added benefit. And the reason it improves is because you can help the child to absorb information better and to give back or display their knowledge better in terms of answering assessments, for example. What we also see in terms of functional impairment is the, the work history, as I mentioned, often a very scattered work or checkered work history, but that's not always the case because you get people with ADHD that is has very, very good work ethics, but it can create then a lot of anxiety for them to be able to achieve and maintain the standards which they need to put in so much more effort than their peers. 
right. So the second aspect of functional impairment is then the emotional consequences. And we know that up to 87% of people with ADHD have at least one other comorbid disorder, and 57% of them have two or more comorbid disorders. And the most common things that we see is sleep disturbances, problems. We see anxiety disorders, mood disorders, substance abuse disorders. So I think it's one of the issues in psychiatry is is this concept of comorbidity and that things tend to occur together. And it's often very difficult to say, well, are these in fact discrete comorbid entities that require their own treatment or they are consequential on the primary underlying condition? So, for example, what you've just mentioned now, we were looking at emotional consequences related to ADHD as opposed to necessarily individual additional comorbid diagnoses. And, of course, that's got implications for how we treat because one of the other concerns that I have, certainly as a psychiatrist, is this tendency towards polypharmacy where we're using multiple agents in the same patient. And so what would your comments be in, 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 in terms of that concern that I've, I've raised where we are needing to differentiate consequences of a condition versus additional other conditions? Yes, I think that's very important, and that's why you need a comprehensive clinical assessment in terms of diagnosis, and why we also believe that it's not something that you can diagnose in a 15-minute GP consultation. And what we also think is not good practice is when, for example, a child is referred by a teacher to a psychologist for assessment and then goes straight to the GP for treatment. Because, yes, maybe the assessment is accurate in terms of the learning disabilities or comorbid learning disorders and the ADHD, but you cannot pick up a clinical diagnosis just with the assessment. You can't just you know, and then the, the child or the adult gets to the GP for the script, but they have never been fully assessed for a comorbid anxiety or depressive disorder, for example. The other thing that we need to remember, especially in adulthood, up to 80% of the people that present to you with, doctor, I think I have ADHD, actually have something else because yes. depression can have cognitive symptoms. If you're anxious, you can't concentrate. So it's really, really important to tease out what is the chicken, what is the egg, and treat appropriate, and as you mentioned, try to avoid polypharmacy as far as possible. There's one other thing that I want to remark. For me, the saddest thing about the functional impairment, and I think that is somewhere where Jessica will also be able to elaborate for us, but what I see is the poor self-esteem, mm. the loss of confidence, the script that they start to live of a life of perpetual failure or I'm stupid or I'm useless or I will never amount to anything. And they always feel that they're behind their peers in terms of achievement. I think that's all critical, but I wanted to just touch on something which is quite specific to psychiatry and, 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 and in medicine in general is how you interpret a symptom. So if somebody says to you, I'm struggling to concentrate, that automatically opens up a whole uh, smogger's board of differentials as opposed to can't concentrate, therefore it must be attention deficit. And so my concern is that you need to fully explore each and every symptom within a much broader context of what the possibilities might be. Otherwise, you are really reducing it and potentially missing the boat. I can't agree with you more. I think in terms of the first thing is if someone says they can't concentrate, you need to understand the expectations as well. Yes. Because if they be a, are expecting to be able to concentrate eight hours, 
there's a flaw in the expectation. You only need what they show. It's an average concentration span is 15 to 35 minutes. Right. So what are we treating? And the second thing is also why can't the person concentrate? If your cell phone is on and you have two screens and there's music in the background and your child is outside and the cat is mowing, you will not be able to concentrate. If you have not slept at all during the night, you will not be able to concentrate. So there's a lot of common things that's occurring way more commonly than ADHD, which is only present in about two and a half to three and a half percent of the population. Well, I think that there's another issue that you raised, and this is expectation of performance that I see in adolescence and the push to say, well, if I'm not getting beyond a certain mark and I'm battling to concentrate beyond a certain number of hours that I've already committed to the studies, then I've got a concentration or an attentional problem, and therefore there's a push for a psychostimulant to kind of give me that extra because I clearly must have a problem if I'm not able to go beyond those hours and get beyond those marks. So I think that this push towards performance is creating a, a, a situation where parents potentially or the individual are almost looking for a diagnosis that will bring treatment that will, what they hope, push them even further, which I think is an unhealthy situation. What would you say? The first thing I ask teenagers when I send the parents out, when the parents say, oh, he's not um, performing according to his abilities and stuff, first thing I ask them is, honest answer, does your marks reflect your effort? Yes or no? Right. And just there, half of the kids you can exclude that don't have ADHD, they just need glue. They need to learn study skills or work ethics or whatever the case might be, or do less extramural activities. A child can't be busy till 8 o'clock every evening and then try to study between 9 and 11. So that's the one thing. The second thing is the, I want to say, the cosmetic use of ADHD medication as performance enhancer. Mm. There is this idea that it helps you to study better and it will improve your marks. It makes you more alert. Yes, drink coffee or a Red Bull and you will be more alert. But now that the kid or the, or the adolescent or the adult, for that matters, medical students specifically, mm. take Ritalin and they expect that they will be studying much harder. So now they're actually putting the effort because I know now for the next three to five hours I can focus. Right. Now they're putting the effort, now they perform better and they wrongly ascribe it to the use of the medication. So the medication can make you more alert. But what is interesting, the perceived enhancement is way more that they found on neuropsychological assessments. If we do neuropsychological assessments, there's only about a 2% improvement in people without ADHD, which does not actually translate to any academic improvement. Well, I think that's part of the problem is that when you treat somebody with ADHD, using a psychostimulant and their performance improves. It's not the drug that is a performance enhancer. You're literally treating a condition that allows them to actually perform to their full ability. And I think that therefore the expectation or the interpretation of that is, oh, it's a, it's, it's a, it's an enhancer of performance. Therefore, if, if I don't have ADHD, but I just want to, you know, push a bit further, I'll take that and it will lead to improved marks. And I think what you're saying is the data doesn't actually support that. And I don't think it's a particularly healthy approach to uh, how you deal with studies and performance issues and performance expectations. But there was – yes, Carrie. For example, just to link to that, I absolutely think it's not good practice to 
let's take a trial of medication. If it works, then you have ADHD. That's wrong. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, we're not, we're not diagnosing by response to treatment necessarily. Sometimes, I mean, listen, in psychiatry, we have done that, but I, in, in this particular situation, I think you need to make a diagnosis of ADHD in order to qualify for the medication because we're not dealing with, uh, a, a smarty. This is a powerful, um, you know, medication and it's got profound impact on body physiology. Um, neurotransmitters, etc. So I think that one has to view this very, very carefully. The other question I had in terms of, you know, moving from symptoms to consequences of the condition, what about peer relations? Because you mentioned things earlier like that the child is naughty, unruly, and often it's a little bit difficult to distinguish between are we dealing with a naughty child or are we dealing with a child who has problems? But how does that impact on peer relations in terms of consequences? Jessica, I'm going to hand over to you after I make one remark there. I think with that, also what is happening recently is all the rapid rise in the prevalence and diagnosis of autism spectrum disorders, where any child with some social impairment or any adult with social impairment or poor social skills now fulfill the criteria for ASD, which I, I think it's another can of worms that need to be discussed maybe sometime. But with ADHD, because of the inattentiveness, hyperactivity and impulsivity, we're not observing social cues. We're not good at reciprocity. We're not good at reading body language, etc. And we annoy our peers and cause frustration. And it doesn't mean you have a second diagnosis. Jessica? Yes, Yes, I I, I would completely agree with Dr. Skuman on that. The the sort of social implication is a huge part of the the challenges with ADHD. Mm. So, for example, um, like Dr. Skuman was saying, those core symptoms are the the sort of main ones that we focus on. But there's also that low frustration level that children with ADHD may experience, that emotional dysregulation. So um, in a social setting, sort of, just having that reaction yes. instead of maybe taking that moment to think through before they react. Mm. And then the, the, the children or the teenager often becomes ostracized. Right. So um, just going back to what you mentioned earlier about that, that sort of negative consequence. I mean, I've, I've read somewhere that uh, a child with ADHD by the age of 10 has received somewhere between 10,000 and 20,000 more negative comments than a typically developing child. Mm. So constantly getting that negative um, reinforcement and then feeling like a failure in my social relationships, feeling like a failure in my uh, academic context, and then often resorting to maladaptive coping mechanisms to deal with that. Just, or, as, a ma- just yeah. as a matter of interest, you mentioned those ten to 20,000 comments. Who would those comments be coming from? Is that uh, Do they break it down in terms of where those comments are being received from? Not specifically, but just based on the research that I have done into the sort of social stigma around ADHD, it's from all aspects of life. It, it can be within the school environment, simple comments like, um, uh, get on with your work. Why aren't you concentrating? Why haven't you done that? Where, where's your mind at? Uh, it could be from at home. You haven't done your homework. Why haven't you done that? It could be internalized within the child or the teen as well. Negative thoughts. Or, Why can't I do this? Why aren't I able to, to manage these things? And then again, maybe from, from peers as well. So I think it's from almost all domains right. of functioning. 
And I suppose it's really difficult, although not impossible, obviously, to tease out what is on a on a on a spectrum of 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 concentration, uh, because everybody has different levels of concentration and attention. And the question is, when does it move into the realm of diagnosable? Uh, pathology. Yeah. And here I wanted to, to, to bring Jessica and obviously Renata, you can comment, but Jessica, you, you, you are a, a qualified school teacher as well. And one of the instruments that, uh, I certainly was always made aware of and, and utilized was the, the so-called Connors rating scale. And what I liked about it was that you really got a, a very, um, well, not necessarily a global view, but you got a view beyond the clinical. Um, observation of the potential patient where you were saying, or, or sufferer. I know Renata is not keen on the word sufferer, but I use sufferer in a, in a very sort of general sense. Um, I could use the word patient. But the issue is that you get the same um, questionnaire filled in by a teacher, by a parent, and of course I think the treating professional also looks at the Connors rating scale, and then you triangulate that information, and then that also contributes towards a diagnosis. Do you want to comment on that? Yes, I would say that that is a part of the picture, but definitely uh, in my approach, I see it more as a, a screening element, right. not diagnostic. Yes. Um, the, the sort of elements that I think are really important for a proper diagnostic procedure from, from an educational psychologist perspective is we do a very, very thorough uh, parent intake interview where we get developmental history mm-hmm. about about the child. I like to also go into the classroom environment um, where I do a classroom observation. So the child would not be aware of me. They would never have met me. They don't know that I'm there to observe them. And as well as I can kind of be um, not obvious that I'm observing them, I walk around the class and I just get really good insights into um, structural elements to a schooling environment. So what is the teaching style? Is that maybe an area that we could support? Or is this child distracted by where they're being seated? So you get a lot of contextual information followed by then a a session with the child where, I mean, even a child from as young as a primary school years, grade one, grade two, they can verbalize really, really well what they are experiencing in in their minds. So I like to get their voice and I like to use their voice um, as part of my procedure. And then getting information from other important role players like the aftercare teacher, is a child able to manage in a structured environment, but then in an aftercare setting where it's more unstructured, we see challenges come out, grandparents, um, or pairs, parents. We, we want all of those voices to be able to get a very, very clear uh, picture. So I think for me that's a very important issue because, you know, sometimes behavior is context-specific as opposed to being pervasive. And so I'm always very sensitive to where is the behavior happening. And if it's happening in one location versus others where you might anticipate that a problem would be happening, why is that the case? And I'm just listening to the extent to which you get involved. And I'm thinking that to me sounds ideal. The question is how real is it in terms of being able to actually do that for every single child to make sure that the diagnosis you make is in fact well-founded and then if it is, you've got a very broad picture of exactly what is going on. And if there's no specific diagnosis of ADHD, there may be other issues that you pick up in different contexts that might guide you in a certain direction. So, I mean, idealistically speaking, I would I would obviously love to see that that's the case for each and every child, given 
that this is not a, a minor, I mean, this is a significant diagnosis and there's going to be a significant intervention. So we want to make sure we get it right and we want to make sure that it's a, it's a, it's a comprehensive intervention. So Jessica, just following on from, from what you were saying and in terms of my comments. So I think also, also Renata, you would be able to really explain from the perspective of working in communities where it isn't always possible to do that process and how the Goldilocks and the Bear organization has been able to implement a lot of that within communities where maybe we don't get all of the information um, that we would like to get. Um, Renata, I don't know if you want to to share some of your experiences from working in those sort of situations. Yeah, I think it's important that we know that any questionnaire that we do is merely for screening or symptom severity. We do not diagnose with a rating scale. Good. So personally, I don't use the con as much. I do a full clinical assessment as well. And then at the end of the interview, I like either using the Copeland or the um, the Fanabale or yeah. even the Vice Functional Impairment Rating Scale, depending on the age of the patient, to just get an idea of the symptom severity. It's also a very nice thing to look at treatment response. If you start on treatment and you can give objective feedback on what is the difference from baseline, because sometimes people forget how bad it was initially, or it can also highlight for us, okay, this strategy is not working, what else should we try? In terms of what's happening in the Department of Education, you know the complete lack of school support at this stage and all the school doctor positions are frozen, so it's really dire. Now, in terms of the Department of Education requirements, before a child can be referred, the parents and the teacher need to complete the 87-item SNAP rating scale. Hmm. Now, the SNAP contains questions like does your child experience psychomotor agitation? Not many doctors know what is the meaning of psychomotor agitation. Right. So it's completely inappropriate. If you work in communities where people aren't even English, you know, it's it's a third or a fourth language. We have immigrants, we have people whose mother tongue is Kosa, Zulu, whatever the case might be, it's impossible for them to complete that. So we have developed a very brief um, assessment where we get crucial uh, developmental history, and also then contextual information, both from the classroom and from the parents, where they have to describe for us, not merely a tick box exercise, and then we do the screening assessment before we refer for comprehensive assessments we needed. The one thing that's also important is often we have discrepancies. Often in a classroom, there might be problems and no problems at home, and the yes. reason being, like in one and one situation the child can function where there's not distractions however the opposite might be true there might be a lot of problems at home where at school it's going better because there might be better structure at school and the child might be anxious and more you know aware of what I do how it affects um, my peers and I'm sitting on my hands not to fidget we're at home I'm fidgeting with everything so we can see this discrepancies, and it doesn't mean the symptoms is not there. It just right. presents differently. Right. So there could be context-specific factors mm-hmm. which influence the expression or the manifestation of, of the problem. But I think what's important is that teachers are very important in the process. Yes. Parents are critical in the process. But also what is important for mm-hmm. me is, is exactly as we understand things. Rating scales are not 
diagnostic instruments. At best, they can screen and they can give us some kind of measure, but there's nothing that beats clinical observation and involvement with a, a, a wide variety of, of individuals to get as much collateral information so as to build a comprehensive picture. And then based on that, we then decide what further investigations, if any, are going to be necessary to, to, to add to the, to the diagnosis. Now, I mean, obviously we've touched on treatment or the use of, of medication and Obviously, for me, that is that is a big issue, specifically because if I think of psychostimulants, which is what the group of, of, of drugs are that we use to treat uh, ADHD, it has to be embedded within the sort of true ethos of psychiatry, which is biopsychosocial. So that would be more the bio-intervention. And I have to say, certainly in my own personal experience, I mean, good old methylphenidate has probably been one of in my estimation and, and, and in my clinical observation, one of the most powerful and useful agents that we have in psychiatry. I mean, the kind of remarkable changes that one sees in children who you diagnose with ADHD. And, we, you know, there's that typical kid who walks into your room and is literally bouncing off the walls and you can see and the parent is kind of like, can you see what I'm dealing with? This is the difficulty. And you know, you make the diagnosis, you do the assessment, you start the child on treatment, and the response is generally really exceptionally good from a symptomatic point of view, which doesn't necessarily take care of all the other aspects or issues that have arisen as a consequence. So I wanted to touch on on medication, uh, and Renata, I was going to speak to you specifically about that in terms of what are the options, because back in the day, and I'm speaking to when I started out, uh, that was some decades ago. You know, Ritalin was it, methylphenidate, that that was it. Um, things have obviously evolved, things have changed, and we've moved to different types of preparations, different types of agents. And so I thought it would be important just to get a, a sense of what are the sort of spectrum of, 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 of options pharmacologically before we move into the psychosocial aspects specifically. So, Renata? Okay, so I'll try to summarize yes. because it's actually quite exciting because there has been very many developments over the past couple of months. Now, if we go back, the first clinical treatments that was registered for ADHD was in 1937 with dexedrine and then benzedrine trials as well. Methylphenidate remains the gold standard. And as you said, it's one of the wonder drugs of psychiatry with the effect size of up to 0.8, which is very, very good. There's not many drugs that, that touch on that. Now, we also have other groups of medication now. So now we have the stimulant group, which is then your methylphenidate group, but you also have your dexamphetamine and your dexamphetamine group that was more recently yes. marketed in South Africa, although it's been overseas for a number of years already. And then we also have the non-stimulant group, the atomoxidine group. So methylphenidate comes in three groups, short-acting, long-acting, and ultra-long-acting, which the range of effect is between 3 and 12 hours, depending on which one you use, which means often you have multiple doses per day, and you need to to monitor treatment response and balance it with potential side effects. So it works on both dopamine and noradrenaline, very good for inattentiveness, hyperactivity, and impulsivity, but can cause insomnia, can cause anxiety, obviously have appetite suppression, and sometimes end of those emotionality. So the children can be quite down at the end of the day, when they're tired, when the dose wear off, and, and it can seems like the symptoms is actually worse then. 
The other thing that we often see is, especially in teenagers, that they start to complain about feeling that the methylphenidate is dulling their personality. Now, that is often a dose-dependent side effect, but it's something to be monitored. Our second option in the stimulants thing is list-dexamphetamine and dexamphetamine. Dexamphetamine works up to six hours, list-dexamphetamine up to 14 hours. The first registered for the use in children, the second registered for the use in adults. Nice that you can titrate very, very slowly and with small dose increments in terms of the dexamphetamine. Less dexamphetamine, it's brilliant because it covers you the whole day. Now, it works on dopamine and noradrenaline, but also on serotonin, which gives it an additional benefit in terms of it reduces anxiety And it's also very, very good for emotional dysregulation and impulsivity. So definitely something that we should consider. Patients that have started on it or switched, especially those teenagers that don't like the subdued feeling, they report that they're happy to use it. It feels like a softer drug, although it's considered a bit more potent. And then the third group is the atomoxetine group or the non-stimulant group, which predominantly works on noradrenaline. I very much like it because it gives 24-hour coverage, but you need to be patient. And the problem with ADHD patients are their patients. Mm. So, you know, you need to use this regularly for three to six months, but then you have absolute stability. Um, it, it treats anxiety as well. You have no on-off effect during the day. It works brilliantly for emotional regulation. Um, it's just not that potent for impulsivity. So that's something to consider. But then as a group, again, you can have appetite suppression. Some people sleep better with the medication, some people worse. But it's so important that people need to be reviewed, both in terms of tolerability and efficacy. So I think what we see is that there are a range of options. Each one has their strengths. Each one has their potential, I wouldn't say necessarily downside, because I think all drugs have side effects and one needs to be very sensitive to that. But I think that you can potentially get as close as possible to matching the patient's needs with available uh, pharmacological agents, given now that there's a spread of, of, of possibility, starting out with the tried and tested to the newer agents, which kind of add additional uh, uh, utility depending on what the clinical presentation is. So I think that um, that gives us a very nice spread of, of, of what we're dealing with. So that's helpful. The issue is that aside from the bio aspect, there's the psychosocial aspect. And I wanted to come to that because I think very often – you know, psychiatry is certainly seen as, as, as medication driven, but I always return us to the fact that we're a biopsychosocial discipline. The pharmacological intervention is one component of, 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 of what we do and what we can do, but we cannot ignore the psychosocial aspects. And so one of the big issues for me is how a child with ADHD impacts on the family. And specifically the parents, because they are key role players. There's no two ways about that. And the issue for me is not only can they be impacted on, but they also have an impact on the child. So it's a bi-directional relationship. And I know, Jessica, you've, you've looked specifically or you've worked specifically in, in, in this area. So I'm going to hand over to you just to discuss that context of the 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 impact on parents and the impact parents have when there's a child with adhd 
Yes. So um, when I when I did my um, my honors and my master's research, the specific focus was on parental stress in families of children who have ADHD, and um, we looked at the stress levels of 140 parents' dyads, and there were families of children with ADHD. Uh, families of children who are on the autism spectrum and typically developing children, and so you looked at different. Of, so you looked at different samples. Yes, different samples, and, and we were comparing the stress right. levels of and, those of those families. Right, and when we talk about a dyad, we're talking about a parent and a child. That's yes, the, that's correct. Right. Okay, so and um, I focus specifically on on mothers, the mother child um, relationship, right. and what we found was that parents of children with ADHD had clinically significant stress levels. 90% of the parents using the parental stress index were within the clinical ranges of stress. In, and, and it didn't, um, we also compared whether it was a child with a hyperactive type of ADHD, the, uh, the inattentive or the combined type, and the stress levels remained the same regardless of the presentation of, of the, um, the, the ADHD subtype. And so what we have in the background <laughs> is the sound of a child just to add to the authenticity of the uh, episode. And, and uh, Jessica, yes, continue. Sorry, I think that situation will be dealt with. Yes. Um, what we also found then was that there were higher uh, depression yes. um, ratings from the, the, the parents as well, just going on with that that link between um, the stress and other um factors in the the parent and child relationship yes so the the parent symptoms negatively affected the child right. the child's difficulties negative negatively affected the parent and it just becomes this very um stressful challenging uh, system right. so my focus has really been on trying to support the parent because once the parent is feeling contained and feels like they have got resources that they understood. They have more capacity to be able to support their child. So, and yes. I think that's critical because, I mean, you're describing that bi-directional uh, situation yes. where one thing exacerbates the other, which exacerbates the other, and it just kind of culminates in a in an absolute mess if one is not careful. And I think you you you're targeting the fundamental support structure. That is so critical for maintaining um, that situation. So yes, so carry on. How did you? What was your sense there? So I mean, something that I really felt from talking to these parents was just the the lack of of social support, hmm. um, lack of understanding within their own family systems, or whether it's a friend groups, schooling environments. So something I have found. Really empowering for for the for the parent system has been running a support groups. So, I, for example, I run an ADHD support group, which is a a free thing that I I do for the community once a month, and we've been running it since 2019. We've got parents, uh, grandparents, sometimes teachers would join, and it's a space to it's a safe space. Mm-hmm. It's a space to vent. It's a space to um, learn from one another, lift each other up. I learn a lot of practical um, uh, initiatives from the parents as well. And what I've seen is even if a parent just goes from that session with one little uh, practical piece of advice that they can try to implement at home, that is so empowering for them and 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 for the child system as well. And 
obviously we focus a lot then on parental self-care and by them coming to that meeting that is in their way doing a little bit of self-care for an hour well i think one of the difficulties has been to find supportive services and i think that the support group is an excellent vehicle for sharing where i think that you will find similar stories greater understanding and also very often practical tips to actually enhance and improve your own parenting as well as just an opportunity as you said earlier just just to vent and get it off your chest that listen i'm really struggling it's really hard and i think that certainly as a parent uh one is really being taxed and pushed to 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 the max under the circumstances and I think one of the difficulties, as I've understood it, and, and, and you will tell me what the experience is, is that difficulty in maintaining the routine and structure within, within everyday life, just holding it together and doing things. You know, your, your comments there, Jessica. Absolutely. And what we've also got to keep in mind is a lot of the parents of children with ADHD also have ADHD or struggle with executive functioning skills, challenges like planning, organization, motivation. So absolutely, it becomes a a huge challenge in the system. Uh, The parents that I have worked with, they, um, they, they almost say they, they know that they need that structure and routine because without it, everything just falls apart. Right. So it's about finding small things that they can do to to maybe just focus on the morning routine. Like what is one practical thing in the morning routine that we can implement just to make things a little bit slower? Yes. So that might be we, we set out our clothes the night before. So in the morning, we don't have to stress mm-hmm. about finding it. So really a lot of guidance around executive functioning skills things and again being very realistic what works for your family system it's not a one-size-fits-all yes. all answer no no i think you have to find people where they are and then work from there do you ever encounter a sense of hopelessness or a kind of a roller coaster of hope and hopelessness amongst the parent group absolutely and i think that that really depends on where the family is within the journey of ADHD. So what I also like about the support group, we've got parents who have walked the journey, their children are adults now. We've also got parents who are really, really just at those beginning stages trying to figure out what is this thing called ADHD. So um, it really depends on where in the journey the the, um, family is. Mm. Also the different developmental stages bring up different challenges. especially sort of that teen stage, lots of different challenges start emerging as well. So, yes, but my my most recent research, we looked at the experiences of single mothers who've got adult ADHD and are raising children with ADHD. And it was a qualitative research, so I really got to get the, the, the mother's voices out. Yes. And actually, the narrative that we got was, the flip side of that hopelessness. It was actually focused on hope right. in terms of they they actually found that a resource and a strategy was the fact that they had ADHD themselves mm-hmm. because they understand their child better than anybody else. They've literally walked in their shoes. So by being able to flip that narrative and, and empower the parent with their resources, we've actually found that that is a protective factor. But obviously you need the parents to be able to get that knowledge and be able to feel that empowerment. And we're going to touch on that uh, uh, shortly, 
because obviously parental ADHD needs to be controlled for in terms of the, the system. What about issues of blame or, or, or self-blame? Do you, do you find that as a particular theme amongst your parent group? I, I think, um, yes, and again, depending on where in the journey they are, I think a, a lot of feelings of um, being misunderstood or being labelled the bad parent um, are themes that do come up often. And um, it, it's really, really challenging if you don't have um, people to speak to who, who've gone through similar experiences because the stigma of oh, having a naughty child or it's yes. bad parenting it, it can really the negatively affect the parental mental health as well. Yeah, so I think that issue of stigma is an important one. And specifically, I mean, if you get into the issue of play dates and social interaction and your child being the one who is ultimately going to be problematic and how that impacts upon socialization and being able to socialize with the peer group, I, I'm sure that represents yeah. a, a, a major issue. It it is, and I mean it's 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 heartbreaking to hear parents say, you know, um, we don't go out anymore with friends. We don't go out for dinners with friends. We don't do brides with friends um, because we know it's going to be how it's going to end up for our child or for ourselves, and we just don't do it anymore. And then again, how that can lead to isolation, and um, which can lead to to a low mood. Right. So what I try to do is we've got to break things down as much as possible in terms of social interactions. Also just to keep in mind, a lot of children are struggling at the moment with those, those social development skills because of COVID and not having necessarily had as many opportunities to, to engage with children as they would have. So it's about having a very structured play date. A child comes over for a half an hour to 40 minutes there's a structured activity. We're going to bake cookies. We're going to ice them and we're going to eat it. And the other child goes so that the ch children start to learn a feeling of success in that right. social interaction and wanting more of that rather than we have a completely wild, unstructured play date. Yes. Somebody falls off the tree and the child becomes isolated again. But I think that's a very practical reality where you're saying, what is the child's capacity to function optimally? in a specific situation. So we're saying, well, listen, their active concentration at this point is about 40 minutes and then they go off the rails in that kind of situation. So let's focus on that. And as you say, let's have a win. And then we start to build self-esteem and we start to build a sense of one's own competency in those situations, better for the child, better for the parent, everybody wins. But it does require a very realistic assessment of where one is at, and maybe it gets back to a word that Renata raised much earlier around expectations. How do we manage expectations, yeah. and how do we structure social involvement around the realities of where one's child is at, without seeing it as less than, but just as a building block towards a better outcome, ultimately. So that is how I would understand that, Jessica, and it sounds very practical to me and 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 it's 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 what one should be thinking about realistically but i wanted to touch on something that you mentioned and i'm going to switch to renata at this point the whole issue of parental adhd because i think that that you know parents can either contribute to positive outcomes or to negative outcomes depending on the extent to which parents are adequately equipped psychosocially but also if they have their own 
uh, issues that maybe have not been diagnosed or are not being optimally managed, how that might impact on their ability to parent. So this issue of parental ADHD, which I think is quite an important one, because, you know, the apple often doesn't fall far from the tree. So one has to say, well, if the child has, I just need to look at the parents as well, which then speaks to the whole issue of a comprehensive assessment. So, Renata, your thoughts on, on, on parental uh, issues or parental illness as a fact. You know, I think it's important to note that ADHD is the most genetic psychiatric disorder we have, with up to 80% of patients having a first-rank family member that also have ADHD. Right. Until now, they couldn't have, they couldn't isolate one single gene with major effect, but it's definite genetic studies show that especially around chromosome 4 and chromosome 16, which had to do with neuronal migration and dopamine transmitters, it's genetic. So now we sit with a condition that's highly genetic, but it also manifests in an environment, as Jessica mentioned, and then there's the nurture aspect as well. Right. If I can't structure, if I can't create routine, how must I model this behavior? If I can't manage them, how do I model this behavior for my child? What is interesting to note is that although you don't get more ADHD from the one parent than the other, if you know, the, the genetic contribution, the mother's ADHD is linked with the severity of the ADHD. So it seems that a mom with ADHD actually is worse than having a dad with ADHD. And yes, it's linked to the genetic aspects, but definitely also the mom being the glue. And when Jessica mentioned about a study in the single mom households, right. I often use the example because of the funding difficulties that we have in South Africa with remuneration for ADHD in terms of medication and never mind even the crisis in the public sector. But if you have three people in the house, you have a grade one, a grade 12 and a mom, and all three actually requires medication. Who do you treat? Some people might have the argument, yeah, for the little one, because it's the foundation phase, we need to give him a good start. Some people will, will reason, no, the matric, the mark is extremely important. It's determining his or her future. You know, it needs to perform well. My argument is always you treat the mother if you can only treat one. Because if you treat the mother, you, she can help to provide the structure and the support that the children need. Well, I think that's a very profound observation but in, in in terms of focusing on the mother i don't want to ignore the dads because they also play a part obviously and at the end of the day um if one looks at the gender distribution of adhd as i always recall it's more male orientated than 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 female would i be correct in that yeah, it, it's roughly twice the number of males than females but we do have questions about the studies yes. because we do believe that girls conform better to social expectations and they for many girls, especially the intelligent girls that's predominantly inattentive or not that impulsive, right. they can regulate it better, are missed and not diagnosed until they present with comorbid disorders. So whether the gender difference due to one is actually 100% true, it's, you know, we don't actually know. We still believe we're underdiagnosing. But the problem with the dads often, and that is, again, there's socialization through society is, the behaviors that the children model is low frustration, tolerance, and aggression, mm. substance abuse, right. speeding. And often that is considered, oh, but it's acceptable behavior for a father, but not for a mother. And then the ADHD is not diagnosed right. because we think that is just how dad is. Don't be like that. And only when you diagnose the child and if the father is then 
part of the evaluation, they recognize their own struggles in their childhood and they recognize, or the partners recognize, okay, but daddy have ADHD. And, and it helps a lot. But what I see is that the relief it gives for the father is more to understand the child. Right. Um, I think I, I still see, and, and Jessica, I suppose it also depends from household to household, and there's also single father households, we must remember. But for a dad, it has a lot to have empathy with a child and not to get so frustrated with a child if we know what's going on and we can recognize the symptoms in ourselves as well and there is a name for it. Where in the mother, it's more the question of keeping everything together. Well, I think that that is why I always like to see both parents. I think it's very important to get the full picture. Otherwise, you you might be missing something very important in terms of dad. And and they often sit on the couch, and when you <laughs> ask them, they say, "Oh, it must be you." And then that one will say, "No, but it must be you." <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. And I think the issue is we're looking at a system, and we're seeing how everybody. Um, is involved and what each individual needs because obviously the child is brought with a problem but we're taking it one step deeper and we're saying well, well let's look at the parents let's look at them as individuals what problems they might individually have and then looking at them as a, a parenting couple because at the end of the day I think one of the critical parts of parenting is consistency between the parents and I don't know to what extent that kind of inconsistent parenting might also contribute to worse outcomes um, with children with, with, with ADHD. Jessica, your thoughts? Well, I think something that we do also need to keep in mind and Renata, I'm not sure if, if you would agree that there are, there seem to be higher levels of divorce amongst families of children with, with ADHD. So often you are then also having to manage two different households, yes, two different parenting styles possibly. Um, so it, it does become really challenging. Um, having both parents and both parents being on the same page is yes. obviously the ideal, right. but we also have systems where uh, they're not on the same page or uh, different parenting styles, more authoritarian styles or more uh, positive reinforcement styles. And and the thing that we know is just consistency and follow through whatever that approach is. That is what is important. <laughs> and it's very challenging. No, exactly. That's the point that I'm making is that, you know, we can see where the problems lie, but it's often very difficult to manage them because of other factors which have crept in. And getting divorced parents to potentially get onto the same page in the best interests of the child, that's another uh, uh, area that really requires the individual treating professional to have a concept of that and, I, and, an, and an idea of that and also the skill to kind of bring people together uh, around the child and having the focus on the child as opposed to pulling in different directions. The child doesn't benefit and then it just the whole system kind of breaks down in terms of finger pointing and the, the, the inconsistency. So do you ever get into parental training? How do you how do you coach and train parents to be more effective in terms of managing their child with ADHD? I, I wouldn't say specifically parental training, right. but I, I will often focus on sessions with the parents. And like I mentioned, it's it's really about I look at an an individual family system. Um, we we break things down areas that they might be struggling with. So let's say. It's homework. That's an area that causes huge distress for the family system. We focus on homework. 
small things that we can do within that time frame to, to assist and lessen stress or whether it's morning routine or whether it's that emotional dysregulation. So yes, giving the parents tools, whether that is tools in terms of language, how to phrase things with their child, right. how to um, engage with them on a different level when, when that sort of reactivity occurs. So uh, it, it's really a, an approach where it depends on the family system right. that I guiding the parents, I would say. Well, I think where I'm coming from is that there seems to be an emerging literature on the influence that parents have on guiding their children's peer relationships as opposed to working with the children in terms of their social skills, where it's seen that potentially working with the parents to equip them to guide the process as opposed to focusing on the child's social skills issues might yield a better dividend. Uh, Renata, comments on that potentially? Yeah, I agree. I think, well, although I believe in sending the kids for social skills training, I do focus almost more on equipping the parents and just parting with information every single session, giving them one tip or one suggestion so that it's not overwhelming. Also, bearing in mind that they might have ADHD and can't absorb a lot of information. Also, the financial constraints. Not everyone can afford to pay for a psychologist as well for social skills training. So I agree with that. Um, I also, in terms of parental education, I would recommend (laughs) resources that we have, such as the book, All of These Things Are Important to Me. That's also published through the foundation. And also through the foundation, we try to link them with other websites and um, support groups and also ask them, you know, we, we, we post daily tips for parents, tips for teachers, just understanding your child better. You know, it's much easier to absorb one micro teaching or micro learning every day than to try to absorb a textbook. Right. Well, absolutely right. And sometimes I feel that the, the, the texts can often be overwhelming. And so it's easier just to kind of break it down into practical realities of individual situations and and then taking the minor win there and building on it as we move forward. Jessica, any further comments from you in that respect? No, I'm I'm just, I would totally agree with what you have both really emphasized there. Small little takeaways that can be implemented in a practical way that can be really empowering for the whole family system. So I do see that the parents are critical components here. And I mean, we always tend to focus on the individual with the problem. But I think in today's discussion, I'm trying to really broaden it out and, and, and just to set the scene that actually everybody has a part to play. And for me, that is that is very important. And also, unfortunately, often very difficult because bringing everybody into the room Getting everybody on the same page so that we can all move in the same direction is, 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 is a real art in itself, actually. And so it's not just as simple as the kids got ADHD, put them on medication and we all go home. It just doesn't work that way. And I, I think that this is really one condition amongst all the conditions that we see in psychiatry where the biopsychosocial approach is so important. So I just wanted to thank Renata and Jessica for joining us and giving of your time and knowledge and just to kind of close with a with a few comments where where we see that the parent is a critical component in the in the process of 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 change and of healing and so obviously a focus on the parent and parenting 
I think is critical for optimal outcomes for children with ADHD that goes beyond medication-related symptomatic improvement. So where a child suffers from ADHD, a holistic biopsychosocial approach must encompass the parents. And to the parents who are listening, I'm going to leave you with an observation from Matt Walsh. Matt is a somewhat controversial and provocative individual. He has comments on culture, politics, and religion, but he said something which I think is, 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 is important. Parenting is the easiest thing in the world to have an opinion about, but the hardest thing in the world to do. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.